Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Cup of Joel. I am Joel Delgado, and along with me for the first segment, we're doing things a little differently. We're doing a little uh, a round robin show, I guess you can say, just going back and forth on a bunch of different topics with different people. Uh, first up, we're talking NFL, NFL draft in particular, with Brandon Wise for the FIUSM staff. Brandon, how you doing? I'm doing really well. How about you? Doing good. It's uh, we're doing this on Friday. We're releasing this tomorrow morning. So, well, this would be Saturday. I guess I'm still getting used to this whole podcast thing. So, but um, I mean, the draft is is fast approaching. Oh yeah, it's coming up quick. People are getting excited. People are talking about it, and there's still mystery surrounding Robert Griffin Jr. Robert Griffin III. Why do I call him Junior? <laughs> I always I did that last week too. Robert Griffin III, RG3, yes, the number two pick, presumably, probably going to be the number th- uh, number two pick. Uh, we don't know who he's going to, though. Obviously, the number one pick, Andrew Luck. And the big debate is who – I mean, one of the big question marks is which quarterback of those two. This is two cream-of-the-crop quarterbacks for, for this draft class. People are saying can't miss, although they say that for a lot of quarterbacks who yeah. end up you know, tanking anyway. But for this year, it looks like it's these two guys. They're almost near can't miss. So, I mean, is Andrew Luck – and they both have different skill sets. So it's going to be interesting to see – which one of these guys is going to have the better NFL career? I mean, to me, it's a different story, though, because last year it was a completely different circumstances. Cam Newton was an athlete man among children in college. These two guys, I'm not so sure about. You know, I, I have my own skepticism about both of them. Andrew Luck, he played with one of the most athletic teams in the Pac-12 last year, probably one of the most athletic teams in the nation. He went up against another team in his bowl game, again in the Fiesta Bowl against uh, Oklahoma State, and it was a shootout. And that was supposed to be one of those best defenses things in Stanford, and, and a good offense came in and showed them that they weren't as tough as they thought they were. I'm skeptical about Andrew Luck just because there's too much praise. To me, there's too much good things that are being said about him. And then Robert Griffin, it's a late surge thing to me. Why weren't we knowing about this kid before is my question. I don't know why we're going to be so hyping about him now. Why weren't we like this before the season started? Yeah, no one was talking about Robert Griffin III before. RG3 was an afterthought. No one was even talking about him before he had this monster of a season at Baylor. And don't get me wrong, he had an amazing season. He's got a great skill set. He's almost like Michael Vick Part 2, but without the head case, you know, being a head case early on. And he's also, you can say, quicker. I mean, he's probably going to be even faster. I mean, it's close. I mean, they're both very fast, but... I mean, the general thinking is that those two guys are going to be very similar in their careers. And what worries me about RG3 is for that exact same reason is that Michael Vick wasn't exactly a big guy. I mean, uh, RG3 is no Ben Roethlisberger. He's no um, Tim Tebow or Cam Newton even. It seems like RG3 and Andrew Luck are almost like Cam Newton, but for different reasons. They take a different part of who Newton is, and they, you know, they're, they're better for, I mean, Andrew Luck for his athleticism for his ability to throw the ball, and to, he's a very smart guy. RG3, a very smart guy, good personality, very fast. He can also throw the ball pretty decent, uh, decently well. But again, I mean, in the Big 12, RG3 was a lot, there were a lot of wide receiver screens, little bubble passes. I mean, they weren't exactly going long ball every time either. Mm-hmm. So it's a different type of thing, and it's going to be interesting to see how that translates to the NFL. My thinking is Andrew Luck is more geared to be a prototypical NFL quarterback. And it doesn't mean that RG3 isn't going to be successful, but I have to wonder how long. And that's the kind of like the wondering with 
if RG3 is going to run out of the pocket and do a lot of those kind of things, he can't take a big hit like a Big Ben can or mm-hmm. a Cam Newton can or a Tim Tebow can. Well, see, the only thing is I don't think Robert Griffin is like Michael Vick when he first came out. I don't think his first instinct is to run out of the pocket and try to find space. He wants to find his receivers, but when he was at Baylor, he was always under such duress that he had to scramble and he had to try and find lanes. So I don't know if it's the fact that of that... But, again, you said he is very light, and that does scare me a little bit. Even he, though he is so big and muscular, he's still very light for a quarterback. He might have to run, though, depending on what team he's drafted by. I mean, if it's the Browns, uh, I don't think they have that good of an offensive line. I mean, they have, a, they have to me anyway, a Hall of Fame left tackle in Joe Thomas, which is a good start. But it's the rest of the line that scares me. You got Alex Mack at center, Joe Mack, or Joe Thomas at left guard, or left tackle, excuse me. But the rest of the line is very suspect. Now, you go to a team like the Redskins, and they just drafted a right tackle last year in Trent Williams. He could be solid, but he's still very young, and he's still learning everything there in Washington. I just. To me, I don't know what a good fit for him would be because I don't know what kind of style best suits him um, in the NFL. So, I mean, if, right now, if you're a team, an NFL team, and you have to pick between one of these two guys, Andrew Luck or RG3, who do you go after? Oh, man. Just because Luck is so can't miss, in my opinion, you have to go after him. But I'd say I, I, I go Luck. Just because, Griffin, I don't trust these surges. We've seen this kind of thing before. Take a look back in history. There's an 07 draft, you might remember. Some guy named Jamarcus Russell who made a late yep. surge at the end of the year. Rumor was he could take he could throw a ball 60 yards from his knees when he went to the Sugar Bowl and worked out. I mean, that stuff all built up at right before the draft, and then guess what happened? He turned into a bust. Yeah, I mean, and then again, I mean, it's very conceivable that Andrew Luck could end up like a – a Ryan Leaf. I mean, it's not beyond the realm of possibility. That's why I'm so suspect of, dra- of drafting a quarterback because you never really know because it's a different game from college to the NFL. Some guys, I mean, yeah, they, you, they look like they have all twos. I mean, look at the, the Joey Harrington, David Carr draft. I mean, that was another one where those two guys, people were so high on them and the Lions were thinking that this was going to be the guy and the Texans were like, this is our franchise quarterback. But that's, that's a little different because David Carr... For everything that guy went through, you look back at his numbers, they're not as bad as you'd think they were. You might go back and think, oh, that guy was just a bust. He got put in a no-win situation. He got drafted by a franchise that was literally starting up. And he actually led them to some pretty successful numbers there in, in Houston while he was there. And you know what? He laid the groundwork for where they are today. That's true. So, I mean... If it was me, I would go with Luck as well just because he's, he looks more durable to me. Mm-hmm. And he can last longer in the NFL than I think an RG3 can. I think RG3 is going to be explosive. He's going to be so much fun to watch, I think. But the question is how long. And if you're going to be drafting a guy, number one, number two, you need to be sure that this is a guy that can lead your team for 10 years, 15 years. I mean, that's, a, that's what a number one pick should do, mm-hmm. first of all. I mean, that's a guy that's going to be the anchor of your team, the face of your franchise. And I think for I think for the Colts, some people were saying maybe RG three even leaped Andrew Luck in terms of the draft board. I don't I didn't buy that. I don't buy that. Still, I think Luck is still your best bet. Is he one hundred percent certain to be a, a success? No, but 
he's got all the tools. He's a smart guy. So is RG3, and RG3 is going to be, again, fun to watch. And both of these guys, what impresses me is that their demeanor is very, very strong. They have a very yeah. strong demeanor and a good head. I mean, they have a good head on their shoulders, and that's that's where Michael Vick and uh, Jamarcus Russell had their problems coming into the NFL. Now, Joel, I, I told you about this news a little bit earlier, so I pose this question to you now. The rumor right now is that the Saints and Drew Brees are having problems with their contract issues because he's in a contract year. Now, the problem there is that Drew Brees, they want to make him the highest-paid NFL player ever, basically. But if they do that, they're going to have to lose three key guys. Um, Carl Nix, their left guard, who's who who Drew Brees loves, Mark and Marcus Colson, I believe. So what do you do here if you're the Saints? Do you cut ties and look for somebody else, even though he's really the face of your franchise? Or do you get rid of those other two guys that, that Drew Brees loves? It's so hard because <laughs> – and we've had these discussions. I mean, Drew Brees is the adopted son of New Orleans. He's their favorite son now. He took a, a city that was – you know, in despair after Hurricane Katrina, and he took them to a Super Bowl and won their first Super Bowl ever and one of the most famous post-Super uh, Bowl moments with his son. I mean, those images are going to be in the minds of New Orleans fans forever. It's never going to go away. And, and if you're a New Orleans fan, if you're the New Orleans organization, you want Drew Brees to end his career in New Orleans. You want him to live in New Orleans. You want him to work for your organization when he retires. I mean, he, you want him to do all of those things. But... At that price, I think it's. I think you have to almost. I think you almost <laughs> have to, even if it's not smart. You almost have to do it because he's that important to your franchise. And I think having him around, you can lose some pieces. I think you can survive losing a Knicks and a Colston and even some of those bigger guys. I mean, they survived some other things before that. Yeah. But I, I think you got to go after Breeze. <sighs> the only problem is a lot of people consider Knicks to be one of the best guards in the NFL. I don't know how you can survive losing that guy. That's a very big piece of that offensive line because without him and without the rest of that line, there's no time for Drew Brees to throw. And there's a reason that line is so good. My only thing is I think you can survive without Colson, though, because just the way that Sean Payton and Drew Brees have set up that offense now, that they don't need a big-name receiver. They can do with the, the Devery Hendersons and the Robert Meachams of the world. But I ask you this because, going back to the draft, if he does end up a free agent, what does that do to the draft? It's insane because it depends <laughs> on what team goes after Drew Brees, and it's going to be very interesting to see who does go after Drew Brees. I mean, one of these teams, I mean, if I was the Dolphins, if I was the Dolphins right now, and, and if Drew Brees is a free agent, yeah, you drop everything. I mean, forget Flynn, forget I mean, Manning, all of them. You just go after Brees. You said that before, though. They've, they've gone after him before, and they ended up with Dante they, Culpepper. And I think that's why they he might be like, I don't want to go to Miami. But anyway, that's going to do it for our NFL segment. Brandon Wise, thank you for joining us. No problem. Look forward to having you in the future on the podcast. When we come back, we're going to be talking some NBA with Rico Albarison. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back in about 30 seconds. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, now I'm being joined by Rico Albarison, who's going to talk some NBA with us. Rico, how you doing? Um, doing pretty well. It's uh, pretty exciting to be on here for the first time. Thank you for having me, man. Awesome. Hopefully the first of many times. So we're going to go straight into it. Some NBA talk. It's going to be. It's 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 that middle right after it's the second half of the season. People are excited coming after that 
all-star game with its own controversies maybe we'll touch upon that a little later on in our segment oh, but boy. i mean yeah I mean, that's it's ridiculous it really is but the heat are now basically the unquantified favorites to win the title i mean at this point they're the hottest team in the nba you can't deny this the hottest team in the nba they're first in points you know points allowed first in points scored i mean they're just lighting everybody up i mean is i mean in your opinion are the heat unbeatable at this point if they play like this the rest of the season if they play like this during the playoffs can this team be beat if they're playing like this no they can't be beat because we're talking about a team that has two guys that are unbelievable in LeBron James and Dwayne Wade. I'm not going to take anything away from the fact that, you know, people like to say, oh, they need a guy who they could go to in clutch and LeBron's not clutch. And it's stupid arguments because right now at this moment, they're just blowing teams out of the water. And it's not even fair at times. Like last night, LeBron, 38 points. 11 rebounds, 6 assists, 5 steals, no turnovers. And that's not even, like, one of the most exciting parts of the game because then you have Wade with 33 points and 10 assists. But he completely gets overshadowed because of LeBron's stat line. It was ridiculous. Playing without Bosh, by the way, as well. Look, if Miami is playing this way for the rest of the year, which I think every everybody imagined them playing like this, this is how everybody imagined. If they're playing like this in May and June, no one's beating them. But I will say this. Playoffs are such a slower game. And I honestly feel, I don't think they're going to lose in the Eastern Conference. I think uh, they're going to be in the finals. They're the favorites to win. I said it at the beginning of the year, that's the team to beat. But I honestly feel that maybe, just maybe, a team like Chicago this year I'm saying defensively they are magnificent defensively and a team like that can really slow down the heat but here comes the problem is that in the fourth quarter it turns into the Derrick Rose show and then they go to that one man trying to attack five you know hero ball and it sometimes doesn't work so do I think the Miami Heat playing right now the way they're playing now can be beat no. Do I think that's going to continue into the playoffs? No. I think they will come back down. They'll come closer to the pack because of the fact that the game will be slower in the playoffs. It's it's almost a fact that the game slows down in the playoffs. They cannot keep this up-tempo style. Okay, so you're saying the Bulls would be the biggest threat to the Heat at this point? In the East, if we're talking overall, my personal thoughts are, Oklahoma City can play at their pace. Very nice with Durant and Westbrook because who's really guarding Westbrook if you're playing a series between Miami and and the Thunder? You know, you have LeBron on Kevin Durant. You have um, Dwayne Wade on Harden in crunch time minutes. But can you really expect Chalmers to stay with Westbrook? Westbrook is just lightning fast. He is ridiculously fast you don't think uh they would put wade on westbrook instead and i mean they make that switch and they may and then leave chalmers Chalmers on on harden i mean that that's such a mismatch for him harding is such a great scorer coming off the bench 
he is right there. He's going to be the sixth man of the year. He'll probably be most improved player of the year. He is such a good scorer. Um, if you take his per 36 numbers, uh, per 36 minutes, he's actually averaging more than 20 points a game. Uh, obviously, because he doesn't pull, like he's averaging close to 30 minutes a game. So his averages don't look that high, 17 points a game. But when you need points, he will give you points. He can attack the basket. He's such a good three-point shooter. So no matter what you do, it's almost like pick your poison. Do you want to cover Westbrook and not cover Harden? Or do you want to cover Harden and not cover Westbrook? But if you're the Heat, you got to take your chances. Oh, of on, course. I mean, you're, you'd you rather have try and get Harding to beat you than rather get Westbrook to beat you. Well, of course, yeah. You, you take your chance with Harden trying to beat you, you know, being covered by whether it's Chalmers or whether they have a lineup where Battier's in there. You know, that would make sense. But I like the Thunder. Uh, but another team that I really like out of the West, nobody's talking to, well, now people are talking about them, but nobody has really been talking about them, is San Antonio. San Antonio, everybody thought, oh, the door's closed on them, the window's done. They just ran into a team they can't beat. That's a team, it's just a matchup situation. It's not necessarily that they're a bad team or that they're too old, although the age is something there, but they are such a smart team. They really know how to get in your face. They don't make stupid mistakes. That's a team that they know. Everybody knows what they can do. Even Duncan. Duncan is not the same guy as he used to be six years ago, where he was torture chamber. You know, Mister Fundamental, just get you on the bank or you know post you up. He's not like that, but he does things that he knows he can do. He directs traffic. He sets up screams for Parker and Ginobili. You know, he knows how to kick out of a double team. You know, he knows how to find the open guys. That's a team that I could totally see slowing down the heat because of how smart they are defensively. And they always have these no-name guys. David, uh, what's his name? Uh, Gary Neal. You have Matt Bonner. You have uh, Kawhi Leonard. I mean, these are guys that they just come out of nowhere and somehow Popovich knows how to work them. And that's a team that I could see slowing down the heat and possibly beating them. Yeah, Popovich has definitely proven to be one of the best coaches of this era of basketball as far as consistency goes, as far as how San Antonio has been at a, at a consistent level of play for the most part of the last 10, 15 years. But you have to wonder, and you mentioned earlier, the age is an issue, especially with this kind of a season. Can they maintain that kind of a level of play going into the playoffs? I don't know if they can. I mean, we saw it last year, and that was with a season that was spaced out. This is a 66-game sprint here, and then going into the playoffs, it's hard. I don't see this team sort of lasting more than one or two rounds, especially with teams like like you mentioned, like, uh, like uh, the Clippers and also... Um, Oklahoma City. I mean, I don't know if this team can keep up at a, at a, in a seven-game series with those kind of teams. I honestly feel they can. And something that Popovich did, actually, this is a funny one. Um, he actually, they were on an 11-game winning streak going into Portland. Uh, this was before the All-Star break. Not right before, but before the All-Star break. And so everybody's like, can they make it 12 tonight? And all of a sudden, they get to the game. Duncan, Parker, and a couple of other guys not playing. Popovich has the guts to pull something like that off. Like in the middle of the season, yeah, these guys aren't playing. Are they hurt? No. 
they're just not playing because I'm resting them. That that's what Popovich will do, and I think that's smart, obviously, because not every coach is going to say, you know what, I'm going to bench Durant tonight. You know, I'm going to you know I'm going to bench Blake Griffin and Chris Paul just for the sake of getting them rest. Not everybody does that because we all know that teams want to get a certain seed. But San Antonio is so smart that I feel that that is a team that is going to make a lot of noise. And they can have like that Dallas Mavericks run that Dallas had last year. Nobody expected Dallas to make the finals last year. And out of nowhere, defensively, their defense, we're talking about Dallas. They used their defense to get to where they needed to go. Right now in the league, right now at this moment, Dallas is number one in opponent field goal percentage. That team knows how to play defense. San Antonio is right up there. They are such a good defensive team. That's why I say in a season like this, where it's just a crazy environment, we never know, San Antonio has a chance. San Antonio has a chance. They get hot at the right moment, they could be in the finals right there. Okay, so if you're the Heat, who are you more scared of, San Antonio or Oklahoma City? I say Oklahoma City just because you have Durant, the star power of Durant and Westbrook, plus all those key role players in that team that just it works so well. They are the most, to me, they're the most dangerous team for the Heat. But at San Antonio, I just don't see it. I just don't see them lasting of in a seven-game series. No, no, Miami. no, no, of course, and, and that's understandable. Yeah, Oklahoma City is most likely the most dangerous team for the Miami Heat coming out of the West. Um, another team... Uh, depending on what happens before the trade deadline is the LA Clippers because there are rumors going around um, the Boston Celtics are shopping actively some guys Ray Allen included and the Clippers have inquired about Ray Allen so you if you could get Ray Allen on that team and have a starting five of DeAndre Jordan Blake Chris Paul Karan Butler and Ray Allen I mean that's a really good starting five and he plays very good defense, and that's a guy you could play in the in crunch minutes late in games, and that would be a surprise team coming out of the West and a very tough matchup, a very tough out because of the way they play. Um, but right now at this moment, if I'm picking two teams to make it to the finals and to m- meet up against one another, it's Miami and Oklahoma City. I, like, I, as much as I said that Chicago could play defense and they can – bring Miami back to regular pace, Miami's not losing to Chicago. They're not losing to Chicago. And out west, anything can happen out west, but Oklahoma City is just so young, so fast, so athletic that I I don't know if anybody could truly keep up with it. I'm talking about any team can truly keep up with them. So if, if we're talking finals right now at this moment, give me Miami, Oklahoma City. That's what I'm calling it. Yeah, that's what I think that's what most people are calling it. I'm saying that too. I just don't see anyone beating Miami in the East out of the East right now at this moment. They can't do it. And Oklahoma City just has too much firepower for that. So, Rico, thank you so much for our NBA talk. We hope to have you again in the future. That'll do it for our NBA segment of the show. When we come back, we're going to have Jackson Wallach, and we're going to talk, can hockey really ever make it in the South, Southeast here in Florida, Phoenix, and all these other Southern Sunbelt markets? We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. And welcome back to the podcast, segment three. We're going into some NHL talk now with Jackson Wallach. Action Jackson, how you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Uh, love talking NHL. I know we don't really talk about it much 
um, in South Florida or in the South in general, NHL is not talked about as much, of course, as in the North. So it's good to talk about it in the South as well. Absolutely. So, uh, Jackson, I mean, the Panthers are playing pretty good hockey right now. I mean, they're not the best team in the NHL by any means, but they're in first place in the Southeastern Conference, in the Southeast uh, Division, actually, excuse me, in the Eastern Conference. And right now, they would be the number three seed in the playoffs. Their fir- it would be their first playoff appearance since the year 2000 when they were swept by the New Jersey Devils in four games. It's been obviously a long road for the Panthers in that the longest playoff drought in NHL history. And, I mean, this is not the only team with problems, not only on the ice, but also in the money, in the financial department. Look at the Atlanta Thrashers of that, like the, the last 10 years. They were struggling to fill up those seats, and then they uh, were shipped off to Winnipeg this season. And now that's causing a whole realignment problem that's going to be addressed with this offseason. They already have the new realignment scheme, but that's another topic for another day. But... I mean, then you got teams like Dallas, who's also struggling in attendance. You got teams like Phoenix, and they've been talking about moving Phoenix for years now. I mean, it just seems like this, these teams in the South and the Sun Belt just can't seem to be successful. And the question is, can these teams ever be successful? Um, attendance-wise, I, it's it's weird. Attendance-wise, here in the NHL, I looked up some stats. Tampa Bay has had the best statistics. In the South, when it comes to attendance, I believe. Now, in 07 and 08, they were 8th in attendance with 19, around 19,000. and But they were last in the Eastern Conference in standings and, and tied for last in the NHL record-wise. So how did that make sense? How that coordinates, you know, being 8th in attendance but last in the Eastern Conference in standings, I, I, I really don't know how that really connects. And, and then in 06 and 07... They were third in attendance in the NHL with around 20,000, but they're out in the first round of the playoffs. And then you go, they were second in attendance in 05-06 with around 20,500, but they were, you know, not very good then either. So I don't know. Tampa's really been the hub for the South, I think, attendance-wise. But, I mean... Uh, other than that, no no Southern team has really cracked the top 10. Yeah, it's hard for a team in the South, especially if you look at those kind of markets and who's in those markets. Mm. I mean, the demographic doesn't make any sense for hockey. I mean, <laughs> and then again, that's why the Panthers sort of moved out of the Miami arena. And when they yeah. built their arena, they were thinking tri-county area. Let's reach out to both uh, of all three counties, West Palm Beach, for uh, Broward County and also Dade County, mm-hmm. and it's it's somewhat worked. I mean, you get the, the the Broward fans and the West Palm fans, but again, Dade County. If I bet you, if you were gonna make a a, a sort of a measurement somehow of of, of what, uh, what percentages of the of the crowd is from Dade, West Palm, and Broward, I I bet you almost everything. I'd bet the farm on it that most of those fans would be coming from West Palm and Broward because that's just where all the you know the you know the the snowbirds are and that's just where all the you know new yorkers are that's where all the canadians you know that uh-huh. move down south to get away from the cold are it's interesting though because i mean especially with a team in south florida uh-huh. you kind of have to be successful yeah. you kind of have to be i mean that's that's how the heat i mean the heat were struggling in attendance before the big three came uh-huh. and then you got the marlins and i don't have to tell you about the marlins because they've been struggling for a long time so it's a back and forth. And the Panthers, they had that one magical year in 1996. Mm-hmm. 
the question is, can they recapture that magic? And what's going to take for a team in Florida to do it? I mean, you talked about Tampa Bay. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's talk Tampa Bay. They made it to a Stanley Cup. They won right. the Stanley right. Cup. They have a history of success. Exactly. And they also have Stamkos, young players that mm-hmm. are marketable too. Yeah, that's and that's a problem for the Panthers. I know that they have great players, but you don't really hear about the Stamkos-type player that Tampa Bay has. Or remember when Carolina won the Stanley Cup. Now, I consider that kind of a Southern team right there, too. Dallas won the Stanley Cup one of those years, you know, way back, I think, in, in 2000. So you have some success with the Southern teams. The attendance doesn't really coordinate to their success, though. Tampa's kind of that oddity right there where I mentioned they were last in the Eastern Conference, and they were, like, third in, in, the, uh, in, in the standing, in the attendance. Yeah, it's, it might take, uh, I mean, a superstar player yeah. of a Sidney Crosby caliber yeah. or uh, Alexander Ovechkin type player to come to a southern te- a southern team and mm. really spark something because that's I think that's where the South really needs help is in sort of that star power. Mm. And again, I mean, you talk to these superstars, are they really going to want to come to a southern team where people really don't? you know give a darn about hockey and and they don't i mean they all hockey players all of them are going to be from canada russia or northern america you know the north northern united states so i mean that's another reason do they want to come down south like that it's tough i don't know what the nhl can do besides trying to get star players to the south what else they can do to really market for the for for the southerners of the united states hockey because obviously it's a problem What's interesting about South Florida in regards to and comparing it with the rest of the southern sort of markets, it seems like there's more Europeans down here. It seems like there's more. I mean, if you talk to people up north, I'm guessing more people are going to come down to Miami than, say, uh, retire in Phoenix or in Dallas or even in Tampa. Florida seems to be a very popular retirement spot for a lot of these folks up north. Mm -hmm. And usually they end up down south. Now, is that who's gonna? Are those the kind of crowds that you want to attract to a hockey game, or is the NHL trying to attract new, younger fans, people of our generation, college students, and young adults, young professionals, to go to their games after work? And that's hard, especially for the Panthers, especially when you have an arena that's sort of out in the middle of nowhere too. I mean, Sawgrass Mall, it's pretty far away from everybody. Right. And I want. I think one thing about the NHL: if you've never been to an NHL game. I've, I've been to football, basketball, baseball, hockey, all four major sports. I think hockey is that one sport where you really have to watch it live because it's so much better than watching it you know, just on television. I think that that's the one sport more than any other where watching it live is ten times better than watching it on television, just in my opinion. If you were the Panthers, how would you go about sort of trying to attract these younger fans i mean it's it's hard it's obviously difficult they've, and they've made it harder on themselves just by not being very good having that longest playoff dr- uh drought in, in, in nhl they've made it hard on themselves already they've already had it hard because they're in south florida but not being good just made it so much harder for them and and they're gonna it starts this year because they're the eight they're the third seed right now where you know it fluctuates from them being the third to the eighth, but I do see them making the playoffs. I think if they make it as the third seed, they can go relatively far in the playoffs, and they make this playoff run. I think it has to start this year. Yeah, it's a hard market for sure for the Panthers, especially. 
uh, to compete when you're when you're in a city that has the new <laughs> Miami Marlins in their new stadium oh, just opening up, and it's going to be during your playoff run. And then you also have teams like I mean the Dolphins have been here forever, and this is a and this is the Dolph this is a football town still. And then mm-hmm. not that's not enough. You also have the Heat with you know LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh mm-hmm. on South Beach doing their thing nearly every night. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for the Panthers, but I think it can work. Like you said, the bottom line is success. Mm-hmm. And I think if, if the Panthers are serious about being a long-term staple down here in South Florida, it could work. I mean, there are a bunch of cities that have four pro teams, and they do just fine, all four of them. Can it work out here? I think it can, but again, it's going to take a lot of work. The mm-hmm. Panthers have their work cut out for them. They got to do a lot of stuff to fix their or their organization. Mm-hmm. But I think it can, I, and maybe I'm naive. I think it can happen. I think it's an enjoyable sport to watch, like you said, live, but it's going to take a lot of work. From a marketing standpoint, I mean, we see, uh, we go to FIU, and during, you know, before their season begins, they have people out here trying to promote the Panthers, doing ticket deals, and this and that and the other. So they're trying to get the college kids to really get into this sport, because I think that's where you're going to, you know, get the most in attendance. I think you might get the most money out of that. Right now, they have the older folks, who the retirees from up north, not even really going to see the Panthers, but seeing who the Panthers play. You need people to come to actually see the Panthers. Absolutely. So that's going to do it for our NHL segment. I want to thank Jackson Wallach for joining us this week. He also was here last week, and next week we're probably going to be talking some college basketball with March Madness right around the corner. So, Jackson, we will talk to you next week for sure. Thanks for joining the program. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So when we come back, we're not quite done yet. we got one more segment to go, and we're going to talk to Igor Mello, who's going to talk with us about some soccer stuff. We had a lot of cool soccer the past week, so we're going to talk about that when we come back. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Cup of Joel podcast. Welcome back for the fourth and final segment. We didn't say we, we we did save the best for last. I think it was an exciting week for soccer, especially with all these international friendlies sort of being played and the U.S. and Italy match and U.S. made history in that one. And also right here in Miami, Colombia, Mexico, playing a friendly at Sun Life Stadium, also causing some waves and stuff. It was a pretty exciting week for soccer. So first off, Igor Mello joining us now in the studio to talk with us. Uh, Igor Mello, the sports director here at FIUSM, took over for me. Uh, I'm very proud to have him here on the show. Thanks for thanks for joining us, Igor. I'm glad. I'm ho- I hope that I'm, you know, the best for last. I've been meaning to be on the Cup of Joel for a while, and I'm glad to be, you know, finally make it here. So I'm looking forward to, to see what we have to offer to you guys in the Internet world. Well, I'm glad to make your dream come true. I <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> finally made it. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Igor, I mean, let's talk U.S.-Italy. U.S. beating Italy in Italy for the first time ever. I think the, the first time they beat Italy ever. Historical night. Historical night. They left the, the Italian fans, you know, perplexed. Obviously, this isn't the, the Italy team that we've all known, you know, to, to, to we grew up with, you know. But Clint Dempsey, you know, striker for Fulham, possibly the greatest American player in Premier, you know, in the English Premier League history. Scored the game-winning goal, I think, around the 65th minute, um, if I'm not in the 55th minute, and secured a victory for USA. I, I mean, after they scored that goal, it was, you know, defense the entire way for U.S. It was a really slow-paced, tough defensive game. But um, F, um, 
you know, USA came out on top for the first time ever in its long, long history. Yeah, I mean, Clint Dempsey's goal, a great goal, by the way, beautifully set up. And I think you're starting to see Klinsman's guys really starting to buy into this system of play. European style. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's key. And that's one of the key things that when they try to bring this guy in was trying to implement that sort of German style of play, the European style of play, which is a lot more crafty technical, it seems like, too. And it seems like the U.S. team is taking to it well. I mean, it took a little while to develop, but a win like this in Italy is, is huge. And let's not forget that Landon Donovan did not play. So the team had to go out and, and, and do it without, you know, their playmaker. Their, I, I like to call Landon Donovan their Steve Nash. Landon Donovan was able to pull it off, um, uh, was, was, was injured, and he I think he was sick and did not make it. And the team was able to, to play well with Clint Dempsey and, you know, and the rest of the gang. I mean, it was great to see the U.S. sort of pull off a victory like that in Italy. I mean that that that's probably one of the biggest wins since uh, probably the biggest win since the U.S. won that game against Algeria in the World Cup. I'll go even far to say that it was the biggest victory for United States. I know it was an exhibition; it was a friendly, but it was the biggest victory for United States since the they defeated Spain um, the year before that World Cup in 2012 and 2011 in the Confederations Cup, which earned them um, we gave them a trip to the you know Confederations Cup finals against Brazil. This is a big time victory, and it gives um, USA fans something to be happy about after you know. Um, a long, tough period of time of just, you know, playing against these big teams and, and really not um, faring too well. But there didn't seem to be a lot of buzz for for this game. I mean, especially before or afterwards. Not many people were talking about it. I mean, people were talking about it. It was big, but, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't as big as, you know, when the U.S. Obviously, the World Cup is different. And also, even for the Spain game and the Confederations Cup, I mean, you didn't see as much buzz for this as you saw for those two games. The difference between this victory against Italy, and, and I know, I know it was an, we, I can keep saying it, it was an exhibition game. The difference between this and the other games, the Algeria game in the 2012 World Cup, the Spain game in the 2011 Confederations Cup, was that USA was able to knock off an opponent, a European team, in their um, home stadium. They traveled to Italy and knocked them, knock, knocked them there. They knocked them out there. So that's huge for a team like USA, a, a team that's growing right now and preparing themselves. And that's huge for you know the future of United States in their of, of U.S. soccer. Um, you know the world uh, the, the World Cup is is a few years away, but the Olympics, the Olympic Games, are right around the corner as well. So where does the U.S. go from here? I mean, now you you, you have this big victory under your belt. I mean, if you're Klinsman, what 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 is the next step for this U.S. team getting ready for the next World Cup in Brazil? I mean, you obviously have to prepare for qualifications, and you have to keep this. The, a, a key thing about World Cup qualifying. And moving on into the World Cup, which this team, you know, this country has done in, I, I believe, you know, it's been a while since they, they haven't made it to the World Cup. Not until, I think, 1986, if I'm mistaken. So it's been a while since this team has not qualified for the World Cup. So chances are they will. The thing is, this team needs to needs to have the same mesh, the same group of players together for a good amount of time. They need to develop that lineup from now and, and, and grow with these have these players grow through you know two to three years span until you get to the World Cup. So the Clint Dempsey's of the world, the Josie Altidores of the world, the Landon Donovans of the world, even the Tim Howards, they need to have that right set of pieces. That 11-man roster needs to stay put 
and he needs to Klinsman needs to find that 11 man roster and stay put with it for two to three years on out until we get to the World Cup, which is in 2014. So I don't even know why I'm saying three years because it's right around the corner. It's gone so fast. Time is flying. I mean, it feels like the World Cup was yesterday. It feels like I was at Buffalo Wild Wings the other day <laughs> watching that game with my buddies and stuff, just seeing that that amazing moment in U.S. soccer history. And now the U.S. trying to build on that with a new coach, with a bunch of new players, a bunch of new young guys that weren't there before. I mean, this yeah. is going to be a pretty different team than we saw in 2010 and 2014. A whole new page, uh, like you said, with the World Cup. Unlike, uh, I mean, kind of like the the Miracle on Ice hockey team, everyone remembers where they were when, you know, Landon Donovan scored against Algeria in that World Cup um, group match. But, um, yeah, like I said, Klinsman needs to find his group, his core, and stick with that core. And that core needs to grow for the next two years to prepare themselves for the World Cup. By no, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that this team will qualify for the World Cup. It's all about, you know, preparing them and, and building this team up for, you know, World Cup time. Obviously, the Olympics is a big, you know, big thing to look forward to but the big picture has always been the world cup you, you know if you, if you go and ask a few people outside you know the the gold medalist of the last olympic games they won't remember it but they will remember who won the last world cup so that's what it's all about all right let's shift gears a little bit now we have colombia versus mexico that same night i mean obviously it was the afternoon for us uh, and eastern standard time watching that u.s italy game and then that same night you have 51,615 fans watching at Sun Life Stadium Colombia take on Mexico and Colombia won 2 to nothing but i think the bigger story is the number of people that showed up it's for growing. that game for it's Colombia versus Mexico it wasn't even i mean th- those are two big teams but i mean just for those two squads you had 51,000 fans show up for a market that supposedly doesn't support soccer in big numbers that supposedly isn't really i mean it's a big soccer market but I mean, this is—I think this is a big, bold statement for you for soccer in Miami. This city is making a turnaround. Obviously, Latin-based Miami. Um, I've been yearning, and I, I'm sure these other fans have for soccer down here. They have been yearning, and and it's getting to the point where they'll go and watch Colombia play Mexico, Wh- whether they're not whether they're American or from another country, they will go and watch that game, and. and People got a chance to see. It wasn't like a B-Squad game where you saw B-Squad players. People got a chance to see top players of the world. You got to see Chicharito from, from Manchester United. With the Colombian side, you got to see Falcao, who plays for, for uh, uh, who plays up north in, in Europe. You got to see the finest players in Europe and in Latin America play right here in your backyard. And... This gives a great opportunity for the, the fans of Miami are making a statement right now to MLS, the MLS commissioner, that now is the time to actually bring a soccer club down here. And it doesn't need to be necessarily at Sun Life Stadium. You don't necessarily need to, to, to have a team there. Granted that the Marlins are gone from that stadium now and that stadium is open for another team to possibly move in and, and play games there. They don't need to do it there. There's other venues here in Miami. There's other venues available. Hell, I'm over here at FIU. Hey, FIU. We're over here at FIU. And FIU Stadium was built with MLS in mind. They were thinking FIFA standard regulations. There's been Gold Cup games there. I mean, FIU Stadium minus the field turf would be a prime spot for an, and it's perfect size. 22, 23,000 fans. 
you can conceivably fill that up for MLS games on a consistent basis, and it won't look empty like it would at Sun Life Stadium. Let me let's be honest here. MLS isn't at that point where it's going to be drawing unless you're in Seattle or unless you're in, you know, I mean, even trying to think. And Joel, this is a perfect place for soccer to grow. No one is saying that whatever team comes down here needs to, you know, tie the knot with a specific stadium. For, for for beginners, they could start off at FIU Stadium and work their way up. Once the fan base increases, they could move into, who knows, a Sun Life Stadium or even Marlins, uh, the Marlins' new ballpark. They're, they're offering um, or build opportunities their own. for soccer. They or can also build, build their own. Yeah. Well, exactly. Or also, also build their own stadium. I, I've see, I see people on Twitter and on these social media websites all the time talk about potential, you know, potentially moving a soccer team to the Marine Stadium out in South Beach. That would be a great vision. Obviously, that's a little unrealistic right now, but you never know. And... You can start slow and work your way up. You don't need a you know a granddaddy team with, with with a huge stadium and a huge fan base. You have to start from scratch. You you the MLS and and, and the owners of the Fusion ripped apart a dream that was down here in South Florida of a soccer team, which was catering to their base. And, and, and you know what? I know we're switching up sports a little bit. I think that when we see the 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 quality of fans and, and, and the commitment of fans when the new ball, ballpark for the Marlins open you're gonna get to see a taste of what soccer could be like because that was a big complaint with with the Marlins ballpark was you know the Spanish fan base the Latin American fan base couldn't go all the way to North Miami if you build a stadium for soccer down here in the heart of Miami are you kidding me you're gonna get fans to come every single night every single game I mean let's okay we're gonna wrap up right now but last question where I mean, do you see an MLS team here within 10 years? I say yes. I think with the momentum, I think we're looking at the potential other cities for for franchises. I think Miami has a lot of upside. I'm not being I'm I know I'm a little we're a little biased. Yeah, of here. course, of course. But you look at Miami. I mean, consistently the highest TV rankings for for MLS games and for big you know soccer events. Like this is where you World have Cup. such a wide array of soccer. And the key, the the biggest challenge, in my opinion is sort of unifying all these different soccer fans because a lot of guys, a lot of people, a lot of fans love their own team. They'll, they'll root for their own nationality team, but they'll scoff. They're soccer snobs when it comes to, like, ooh, MLS, I don't want to see. You see what the strikers here in Division Two, But, I mean, it t- it's a process, and I think you start off with a good base of maybe averaging 15,000 fans. You can build from that. And like I said, um, yeah, you're, you're completely right. And I totally see soccer coming to Miami, MLS Division One soccer coming to Miami within the next 10 years. And in order to get a fan base, like you said, you need to start bringing big names to come down here to Miami. And what better place outside of New York and California, what better place, what better town than Miami, Florida? I think that's the top three destinations in the country. California and L.A., obviously, where Landon Donovan and and Beckham play. And New York. Out of those two, Miami would come third. So I I, I see no reason. And and Miami is a huge population for for Latin Americans, uh, you know, Spanish people, Brazilian people, all over the country. 
come down here to Miami. And I think you can cater to that audience by picking up players from those countries, oh. those nationalities. All right. Thank you, Igor Mello. Oh. Awesome soccer segment. We look forward to having you in future podcasts as well. It's going to be awesome. A lot of fun. And there's a lot of stuff to talk about in the weeks to come with the Marlins starting up soon. We'll talk some more Marlins next week, March Madness next week. It's going to be awesome. Thank you a lot for, for helping us out here. I really appreciate it. I can't wait. Looking forward to a busy, busy sports season coming up. Sweet. Well, that's going to do it for Cup of Joel for this week. Stay tuned for next week. We'll talk some more sports. We want to thank you all for listening. We will see you next week. Take care. God bless. And we will see you later.